0: We continue our three part series that I've entitled Countercultural. And what we began to do last week is to take three common objections that our culture has to the Christian faith. Last week, we looked at the common cultural objection Isn't Christianity too narrow? And we unpacked it from scripture to see that what the culture sees as narrow is narrow because ultimately nothing else works apart from one, Jesus Christ. And what we're attempting to do every week as we look at objections that the culture has to the Christian faith is actually turn the narrative around and from Scripture show that this is the very thing that our culture needs the most. The common objection that I want us to look at today is shouldn't Christians just keep their beliefs to themselves. After all, wouldn't it be a lot easier? It's good that you believe what you believe, but at the end of the day, please keep your faith private. It's fine that you believe what you believe, but just keep it to yourself. And to answer that objection, I want us to look at what does the Bible say about that? Once you do become a believer, once you have these set of beliefs and have the truth that has set you free, what does the Bible say about how we are to live and act and respond? Should what we believe in God, should our faith influence at any level how we live and how we act, how we vote, how we make decisions, how we spend our money, and so on and so forth. And to do that today, I want us to look in my opinion, a seminal passage on the mission of the people of God, as it's found in Jeremiah 29. Well, look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. The Israelites were in very difficult times, very tough times, the background was the great Babylonian power of the time. The great Babylonian empire came into Israel, invaded them, and took the leaders of Israel to exile. And when the Israelites got to Babylon, they were set up on the Kavar Canal. And what they found was a large city, but hostile to what they believed. They found in Babylon a secular paganistic society hostile to the things of God hostile to the kingdom of God and to the God that the Israelites followed and worshiped and the question is in Jeremiah chapter 29 much like the times we are living in today as a church in many ways in exile As we walk through the cities and often we look and we say how different this city is compared to the city of God, the question is, just as it was thousands of years ago, how will you respond? How does a people, the people of God, respond when they are in exile? And so Jeremiah chapter 29 is the amazing answer that God gives a people that have been taken from the city of God, Jerusalem, and brought into the city of man, Babylon. Would you read along with me? Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 14. Hear the word of the living God. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, live in them, Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This ends the reading of God's word. And the grass withers and the flower fades. For the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. There are two things you never talk about at the dinner table. Religion and politics. It's the old adage that we've heard for years. Once again, the culture communicating to us that find that you believe in what you believe, but certainly don't bring it out for public consumption. Keep your beliefs and keep your faith to yourself. Our culture has told us for years that if we would just keep our beliefs and our faith to ourselves, this might actually be a better place to live. But I say thank God for Christians like John Witherspoon, who didn't believe in this adage. John Witherspoon, in my humble opinion, is probably one of the most forgotten founding fathers. John Witherspoon was a founding father. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he was the only pastor to sign the Declaration of Independence. I might add that he was also a Presbyterian. Just as a side note, him being the only pastor and being a Presbyterian, England didn't refer to the war in the 18th century as the Revolutionary War. They actually referred to it as the Great Presbyterian Rebellion. So don't mess with Presbyterians. But thank God for men like John Witherspoon, who said, I will not keep my faith private. John Witherspoon went on to become the president of the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton University, but it was because of his bold courage, because he was willing to bring Christ to the culture, because he was willing to bring his faith to the public square, that he influenced dozens and dozens of people, such as Aaron Burr, such as James Madison, such as 12 Supreme Court justices and so on and so forth, all crediting their, their discipleship and their being trained by great men of the faith like John Witherspoon. Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French sociologist, heard about the, what was going on in this new experiment over in America, and he wanted to know what was so unique, and so Alexis de Tocqueville came over from France, and he toured America, and one of the things that he noticed and recorded in his great work, Democracy in America, is he noticed what made America so great was the greatness of the churches. That it was the churches all throughout the land that were going in and were including all people so that all people might flourish. That it was the faith that they believed with all their hearts that was being used by men and women of faith to go out into their culture to make all things new to redeem culture. It was the greatness of the churches Alexis de Tocqueville said that made this country so great. And it lies in the lies to beg the question this morning that for christians that have been called by our great god how are they today taking their faith into the public square into the society into the culture that they live what does god want us to do with our beliefs Keep them private or make them public? And what can we learn today from this great seminal passage in Jeremiah chapter 29? There's three things briefly I want us to look at in this passage. The first thing is this. What ultimately are believers in God called to do, especially believers that are in exile? What does he say in verses 4, 5, and 6? the first thing that he says for them to do is get off the Kvar Canal and do what? Move in. Move into that pagan, secular, pluralistic society of Babylon. And what does he say? And be a tourist? No, I want you to build houses and I want you to dwell in them. I want you to plant gardens and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. This is the restoration of the cultural mandate. I want you to spread, I want you to increase, not decrease. I want you to live there and dwell there. God is communicating to them, reminding them of the commitment of the covenant people going into the city of man. St. Augustine, in his great work, The City of God, he wrote that great work as he saw the Roman Empire collapsing, the great city of man, and it led him to write about the city that will never fall, the city that will never perish. And what he wanted to remind believers everywhere is that in every city there are always two cities. There is the city of man, but there is the city of God. This is what Jesus was referring to in Matthew chapter 5. That you, talking to his disciples, you are a city on a hill. Therefore, let your light shine so they might what? Glorify your Father in heaven. What God is calling the exiles here in Babylon to do is not retreat not stay away from the culture, not isolate yourself, but to move in. Why? Because he wants his believers everywhere to build the city of God in the midst of the city of man, to create a culture of life in the midst of a culture of death, to bring light where there is darkness, to bring beauty where there is brokenness. He wants them to understand that my believers, my followers, should be the very best citizens in midst of the city to bring the mind of Christ to the center of our culture. Much like it was the calling of the Israelites thousands of years ago in exile, so is our calling this morning to bring Christ, the mind of Christ, to the center of the culture, to our marketplaces, to our neighborhoods, to the public square. God is calling Christians in exile. He says, move in. And build an alternate city. Build the city of God in the midst of the city of man. Make this your home. It's the first thing he calls Christians in exile to do. Make it your home. Move in. But what's the second thing that he calls them to? He calls them to seek something. In verse 7, it says, But seek the welfare of your city from where I have sent you into exile. For in its welfare you shall find welfare. In some translations it might say peace and prosperity. But there's no word in English that captures the original Hebrew. The original Hebrew word here is shalom. And it's the peace. It is full shalom. The peace and prosperity. The full welfare. What God is calling His people to do as you move in and you build the city of God in the midst of the city of man, I want you to seek the full shalom of the city. Full flourishing. Full peace. What that means is that every square inch of the dominion of God here in the city and here in the cities in which you live should be touched by the people of God for the full flourishing of all people. But see what that requires, that requires a faith that is not disconnected from what you do. That means that you must bring your faith into your business and into the marketplace. It means you must bring your faith into whom you select to run this country and run this city. It it affects the way that you spend money. It affects the decisions that you make and the way you raise your family and the priorities and your ethics and your values. In order for the full shalom to happen here in South Florida will require a people, a distinct people, but a people nevertheless that move in and say there is nothing not one area of my life that is not affected and influenced by what I believe and my faith in God in order for every sphere and every area of my life to be made whole and for the full flourishing of all people. It means that you can no longer say if God is calling Christians in exile to go and seek the full flourishing of where they live, it means they can no longer say that my beliefs and my faith don't affect what I do and how I live and how I work and how I vote. It's not an option. Rodney Stark, a sociologist, wrote a great book called the rise of Christianity. And what he did is he studied the early church. And what he set out to do through his research is he wanted to know how could an obscure band of disciples, farmers and fishermen, people that were on the margin of society, how in the world could this obscure group of people lead a revolution that would ultimately consume and take over the great Roman Empire? And this is what he found in his research. He said when welfare and social security and health care plans didn't come from the government and didn't even exist, where did it come from? First, the Christian church. In the fourth century, the Roman Emperor Julian launched a campaign. And in his campaign, he said, I want a campaign for charity that matches the charity of the Christians. Emperor Julian was furious. He said, those, those Christians, they, they outgive us. They outserve us. They outlove us. He says, and what makes those Christians so unique and it made him furious is they don't just love their own poor. But they love our poor. They don't just love and serve their people, but they serve our people, and it turned the world upside down. Christians who em- Christians also he noticed in his research uh, embraced those that the Greeks and the Romans considered useless: orphans, the poor, the elderly, the disabled. Christians also, in his research, realized that in the first few centuries, that even the way that the Christians treated women were, was paradigm-shattering to those of the Roman religions and the Greek religions, and even Judaism itself. They believed that all life is sacred, didn't practice abortion, which was common for the Greeks and the Romans. It was Christianity and the church was open to all types of people, regardless of their culture or their ethnicity, which was unlike the sects that had been established and the religions that had been established at the time, and he ended his work by saying this, he said, I would shudder to think what this world would look like if the Christian worldview had not triumphed over the Roman worldview when it did. You see, it was the message of Christianity, it was the message of the church that 2,000 years ago took an obscure group of men and women and turned this world upside down, but it was men and women who said, I will not keep my faith private, but I will bring it into the culture. I will bring it into every sphere of life. I will build the city of God in the midst of the city of man, and I will seek the full flourishing, the full shalom. But see, this is not just ancient history, but modern history as well. This Wednesday when we are barbecuing and grilling hamburgers and hot dogs and at the beach and at the pool, would we just stop and remember that it was the Christian worldview and the Christian ethic that laid the foundation for religious liberty and the freedom of conscience? Would we remember that it was the Christian worldview that helped lead to the abolition of slavery in this country? Would we remember that it was the Christian worldview that influenced Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement of the 1960s, all influenced the values and ethics influenced by the ethics and the, the values of the kingdom of God? Brothers and sisters, you stand on the shoulders of giants. Giants that have gone before us and said, no, my faith won't be private. Yes, what I believe matters for all of life, for everything, and I will be used by God to shape this culture for his kingdom. Lastly, God calls his people to move in, to build the city of God in the midst of the city of man. He calls us to seek the full shalom, the full flourishing for all people without exception. But the last question this morning I want us to answer is where does this power come from? What moves us and motivates us? Yes, you think about our lives. you even out there thinking this morning, Pastor, my life is difficult enough. I can't transform the world, transform our culture. I can't even fix myself. So it begs the question, where does one get this power? Where does the motivation come to take what we believe in our mind and our heart and be used by God to build the city of God in the midst of the city of man? Well, the answer is found in verse 7. What does God say? Just seek, seek the shalom? Seek the welfare? Seek the peace and prosperity? No, he says, I want you to pray for it. And you say, How's that the answer? Well, who do you typically pray for? We pray for people that we love. We pray for people that we have great affection for. You see, what God was telling the Israelites was absolutely fundamental and foundational to their ultimate mission. He says, pray, which required what? Love. And what God was doing was introducing an ethic and a value that the world had never seen. Love your enemies and pray for them in fact isn't this exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the great sermon on the mount he says you've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but I say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you you see, the Israelites understood what it meant to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the sh- shalom of Jerusalem in Psalm, one, in Psalm 122, but it was absolutely unheard of to pray for and to love your enemies. These are the people in which murdered and killed their fathers and their mothers and their brothers and their sisters, and now God is calling me to love them? Love that pagan, secular, pluralistic society of Babylon? And God says, Absolutely. You pray for it and you love it. And if you're here this morning, you go, How in the world do you love your enemy? How in the world do you pray? Where in the world did they find the power? Where in the world do Christians find this power to love in such a capacity? You see, you might be surprised, but if you're a Christian here this morning, you should never be surprised because this is precisely what Jesus did for you. You see, the story of Jesus Christ is the story of the greatest exile. It's the story of Jesus leaving his great home in heaven and moving into our neighborhood. It's the story of Jesus leaving the the palace of heaven and the throne room of God and moving into our darkness and into our culture. It's Jesus who becomes the perfect resident alien. It's Jesus who becomes the great exile on our behalf. It's Jesus who is persecuted for his kingdom and nailed to a cruel cross and not crucified in Jerusalem the city of God but sent outside the city gates sent outside into exile to do what? To die for you and for me those that were once enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 tells us this that while we were once sinners Christ died for us. That Jesus died, not for the perfect and the upright, but for the imperfect and the broken. That's exactly what Jesus did for you. And it was as if God said to Jesus, unlike Jeremiah chapter 29, He said to Jesus, if you prosper, your people die. But if you die, your people will prosper. So how in the world, in light of that great good news... Could we not go out? The great exile Jesus himself came down and died for you and for me and produced an otherworldly love unlike the this world has ever seen bringing life out of death and bringing light into the darkness it is Christ and Christ himself and the message of the good news of the gospel that moves the church has always moved the church it turned the world upside down but it can also turn your life upside down this morning You see, if you're here this morning and this is all first-time news for you, then guess what? The message that transformed this world 2,000 years ago can be good news for you today. You see, the message of Christianity is this, that while we were once sinners, imperfect, don't have it all together, and broken, Christ died for you And that good news that is preached to you this morning also comes in the form of an invitation to all those that receive him, Jesus. God makes this incredible promise. You can become a son and daughter of God. The calling is great. The calling is great. In the face of adversity and the face of our culture telling us to keep our faith to ourselves. Has there ever been a time when our city and our region and our culture needed to take this good news to see bold men and women who are willing to live out their faith for the kingdom of God? Florence Chadwick was a famous long-distance swimmer in the 1940s and 50s. And in 1952, Florence Chadwick set a feat of her own, it had never been done before, but to to swim the Catalina Channel off the coast of California. It was 21 miles and it had never been done before. There was a strong current that day, very cold water, and she was about to finish and the fog set in. She had been swimming for 17 hours and she just gave up. She began to wave her arms and beg to be pulled out of the water. And, and the support boats that surrounded her and her coaches said, you're almost done, you're almost done, keep going. And after pleading with them and waving her arms in the air, she said, I can't do it anymore, I can't do it anymore. And they pulled her up. And she was a quarter mile from shore. And the support boats, their captains and her coaches said, why would you do it? You swam for 17 hours and you were a quarter mile from the shore. And this is what she said She said, I couldn't see the shore, it was too foggy, brothers and sisters. It might be foggy out there, it might be hard, but we know the finish line, we can see the shore, we know where we're going, we know our hope. And so in these days and in these times, for the Christian, where it might seem foggy, where it might seem like nothing seems like it's going as planned, where it seems like the city of man is overcoming the city of God, where it seems like there's just no hope, remember, you can see the shore. You can see the finish line. Let me close with this. If you ever have the privilege of going to Oxford University in Oxford, England, you'll see beautiful buildings, beautiful lecture halls, beautiful institutions that are absolutely stunning. But one place that you can't miss is where in the 16th century, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were martyred for their faith. Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were great leaders of the Protestant Reformation in England, and because they were not willing to keep their faith private, but to bring their faith into the public square, Queen Mary had them sentenced for 18 years in the great Tower of London. And that fateful day came in 1555, where the two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, would meet at the stake And as they bound their hands together to the stake and as they lit the fire, Nicholas Ridley began to shake and he began to cry out. But it was Hugh Latimer that looked at him and said, Master Ridley, be of good courage and play the man today. For we shall light a candle that by God's grace will be lit for England that will never go out. And they did just that. Four years later, Queen Mary died. New monarch Elizabeth took the throne. It brought the Protestant Reformation into England, eventually across the shore to America, and produced the Great Reformation here in America and the great revivals and the great awakening. And we feel the heat of that flame burning even today. And so I ask you in closing... At Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, is there a Latimer, is there a Ridley, is there a Latimer or a Ridley that would be raised up by this church that says, no, I will not be silent. There's too much at stake. No, I will not keep my faith to myself because I'm about my father's business. Keep my beliefs to myself? Never. It's the only hope this world has. It's the only hope we have to bring light into the darkness, to bring about the city of God in the midst of the city of man.